Parts 3 and 4 of The Appendix to the Devil's Pool This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Devil's Pool by Georges Somme Translated by George B. Ives Appendix Part 3 The Wedding the hemp-beater at once drew the wooden latch by which the door was fastened on the inside. At that time it was still the only lock known in most of the houses in our village. The bridegroom's party invaded the bride's dwelling, but not without a combat, for the boys stationed inside the house, and even the old hemp-beater and the old women, made it their duty to defend the hearthstone. The bearer of the spit, supported by his adherents, was bound to succeed in bestowing his bird in the fireplace. It was a genuine battle, although they abstained from striking one another, and there was no anger in it. But they pushed and squeezed one another with such violence, and there was so much self-esteem at stake in that conflict of muscular strength, that the results might be more serious than they seemed to be amid the laughter and the singing. The poor old hemp-eater, who fought like a lion, was pressed against the wall and squeezed until he lost his breath. More than one champion was floored and unintentionally trodden underfoot. More than one hand that grasped at the spit was covered with blood. Those sports are dangerous, and the accidents were so serious in later years that the peasants determined to allow the ceremony of the livret to fall into desuetude. I believe that we saw the last of it at François Melon's wedding, and still it was only a mock battle. The contest was animated enough at Germain's wedding. It was a point of honour on one side and the other to attack and to defend La Guillet's fireside. The huge spit was twisted like a screw in the powerful hands that struggled for possession of it. A pistol-shot set fire to a small store of hemp in skeins that lay on a shelf suspended from the ceiling. That incident created a diversion, and while some hastened to smother the germ of a conflagration, the grave-digger, who had climbed to the attic unperceived, came down the chimney and seized the spit, just as the drover, who was defending it near the hearth, raised it above his head to prevent its being snatched from him. Some time before the assault, the matrons had taken care to put out the fire, fearing that someone might fall in and be burned while they were struggling close beside it. The facetious grave-digger, in concert with the drover, possessed himself of the trophy without difficulty, therefore, and threw it across the fire-dogs. It was done. No one was allowed to touch it after that. He leaped into the room and lighted a bit of straw which surrounded the spit, to make a pretense of cooking the goose which was torn to pieces, and its limbs strewn over the floor. Thereupon there was much laughter and burlesque discussion. Everyone showed the bruises he had received, and as it was often the hand of a friend that had dealt the blow, there was no complaining or quarrelling. The hemp-eater, who was half flattened out, rubbed his sides, saying that he cared very little for that, but that he did protest against the stratagem of his good friend the grave-digger, and that, if he had not been half-dead, the hearth would not have been conquered so easily. The matrons swept the floor, and order was restored. The table was covered with jugs of new wine. When they had drank together and recovered their breath, the bridegroom was led into the centre of the room, and being armed with a staff, was obliged to submit to a new test. During the contest, the bride had been concealed with three of her friends by her mother, her godmother, and aunts, who had seated the four girls on a bench in the farthest corner of the room, and covered them over with a great white sheet. They had selected three of Marie's friends who were of the same height as she, 
and wore caps of exactly the same height, so that, as the sheet covered their heads and descended to their feet, it was impossible to distinguish them from each other. The bridegroom was not allowed to touch them, except with the end of his wand, and only to point out the one whom he judged to be his wife. They gave him time to examine them, but only with his eyes, and the matrons who stood by his side watched closely to see that there was no cheating. If he made a mistake, he could not dance with his betrothed during the evening, but only with her whom he had chosen by mistake. Germain, finding himself in the presence of those phantoms enveloped in the same winding sheet, was terribly afraid of making a mistake, and as a matter of fact that had happened to many others, for the precautions were always taken with scrupulous care. His heart beat fast. Little Marie tried to breathe hard and make the sheet move, but her mischievous rivals did the same, pushed out the cloth with their fingers, and there were as many mysterious signs as there were girls under the veil. The square caps kept the veil so perfectly level that it was impossible to distinguish the shape of a head beneath its folds. Germain, after ten minutes of hesitation, closed his eyes, commended his soul to God, and stuck his staff out at random. He touched little Marie's forehead, and she threw the sheet aside with a cry of triumph. He obtained leave then to kiss her, and, taking her in his strong arms, he carried her to the middle of the room, and with her opened the ball, which lasted until two o'clock in the morning. Then they separated, to meet again at eight o'clock. As there was a considerable number of young people from the neighboring towns, and as there were not beds enough for everybody, each invited guest among the women of the village shared her bed with two or three friends, while the young men lay pell-mell on the hay in the loft at the farm. You can imagine that there was not much sleep there, for they thought of nothing but teasing, and playing tricks on one another, and telling amusing stories. At all weddings there are three sleepless nights which no one regrets. At the hour appointed for setting out, after they had eaten their soup au lait, seasoned with a strong dose of pepper to give them an appetite, for the wedding banquet bade fair to be abundant, they assembled in the farmyard. Our parish church being suppressed, they were obliged to go half a league away to receive the nuptial benediction. It was a lovely, cool day, but as the roads were very bad, every man had provided himself with a horse, and took en croup, a female companion, young or old. Germain was mounted upon Grise, who, being well-groomed, newly shod, and decked out in ribbons, pranced and capered and breathed fire through her nostrils. He went to the cabin for his fiancée, accompanied by his brother-in-law, Jacques, who was mounted on old Grise and took Mère Guillet and Croup, while Germain returned triumphantly to the farmyard with his dear little wife. Then the merry cavalcade set forth, escorted by children on foot who fired pistols as they ran, and made the horses jump. Mère Maurice was riding in a small cart with Germain's three children and the fiddlers. They opened the march to the sound of the instruments. Petit Pierre was so handsome that the old grandmother was immensely proud. But the impulsive child did not stay long beside her. He took advantage of a halt they were obliged to make, when they had gone half the distance, in order to pass a difficult ford, to slip down and ask his father to take him up on Grise in front of him. "'No, no,' said Germain. "'That will make people say unkind things about us. You mustn't do it. "'I care very little what the people of Saint-Chartier say,' said little Marie. "'Take him, Germain, I beg you. "'I shall be prouder of him than of my wedding-dress.' 
Germain yielded the point, and the handsome trio dashed forward at Grise's proudest gallop. And, in fact, the people of Saint-Chartier, although very satirical and a little inclined to be disagreeable in their intercourse with the neighboring parishes which had been combined with theirs, did not think of laughing when they saw such a handsome bridegroom and lovely bride, and a child that a king's wife would have envied. Petit Pierre had a full coat of blue-bottle-colored cloth, and a cunning little red waistcoat so short that it hardly came below his chin. The village tailor had made the sleeve so tight that he could not put his little arms together. And how proud he was! He had a round hat with a black and gold buckle and a peacock's feather protruding jauntily from a tuft of guinea-hen's feathers. A bunch of flowers larger than his head covered his shoulder, and ribbons floated down to his feet. The hemp-beater, who was also the village barber and wig-maker, had cut his hair in a circle, covering his head with a bowl and cutting off all that protruded, an infallible method of guiding the scissors accurately. Thus accoutred, he was less picturesque, surely, than with his long hair flying in the wind and his lamb's fleece a la St. John the Baptist, but he had no such idea, and everybody admired him, saying that he looked like a little man. His beauty triumphed over everything, and in sooth over what would not the incomparable beauty of childhood triumph? His little sister Solange had, for the first time in her life, a real cap, instead of the little child's cap of Indian muslin that little girls wear up to the age of two or three years. And such a cap, higher and broader than the poor little creature's whole body, and how lovely she considered herself. She dared not turn her head, and sat perfectly straight and stiff, thinking that people would take her for the bride. As for little Sylvain, he was still in long dresses and lay asleep on his grandmother's knees, with no very clear idea of what a wedding might be. Germain gazed affectionately at his children, and said to his fiancée, as they arrived at the mayor's office, "'Do you know, Marie, I ride up to this door a little happier than I was the day I brought you home from the woods of Chanteloube, thinking that you would never love me. I took you in my arms to put you on the ground, just as I do now, but I didn't think we should ever be together again on good grease with this child on our knees. I love you so much, you see.' I love those dear little ones so much. I am so happy because you love me and love them, and because my people love you, and I love my mother and my friends, and everybody so much today, that I wish I had three or four hearts to hold it all. Really, one is too small to hold so much love and so much happiness. I have something like a pain in my stomach. There was a crowd at the mayor's door, and at the church to see the pretty bride. Why should we not describe her costume? It became her so well. Her cap of white embroidered muslin had flaps trimmed with lace. In those days peasant women did not allow themselves to show a single hair, and although their caps conceal magnificent masses of hair rolled in bands of white thread to keep the headdress in place, even in these days it would be considered an immodest and shameful action to appear before men bareheaded. They do allow themselves now, however, to wear a narrow band across the forehead, which improves their appearance very much but I regret the classic headdress of my time. The white lace against the skin had a suggestion of old-fashioned chastity which seemed to me more solemn, and when a face was beautiful under those circumstances, it was a beauty whose artless charm and majesty no words can describe. Little Marie still wore that headdress, and her forehead was so white and so pure that it defied the white of the linen to cast a shadow upon it. Although she had not closed her eyes during the night, the morning air, and above all things the inward joy of a soul 
as spotless as the sky, and a little hidden fire, held in check by the modesty of youth, sent to her cheeks a flush as delicate as the peach blossom in the early days of April. Her white fichu, chastely crossed over her bosom, showed only the graceful contour of a neck as full and round as a turtle-dove's. Her morning dress of fine myrtle-green cloth marked the shape of her slender waist, which seemed perfect, but was likely to grow and develop, for she was only seventeen. She wore an apron of violet silk, with the pinafore which our village women have made a great mistake in abolishing, and which imparted so much modesty and refinement to the chest. Today they spread out their fichus more proudly, but there is no longer that sweet flower of old-fashioned pudicity in their costume, that made them resemble Holbein's virgins. They are more coquettish, more graceful. The correct style in the old days was a sort of unbending stiffness, which made their infrequent smiles more profound and more ideal. At the offertory, Germain, according to the usual custom, placed the trésor, that is to say, thirteen pieces of silver, in his fiancée's hand. He placed on her finger a silver ring of a shape that remained invariable for centuries, but has since been replaced by the band of gold. As they left the church, Marie whispered, Is it the ring I wanted, the one I asked you for, Germain? Yes, he replied the one my Catherine had on her finger when she died, the same ring for both my marriages. "'Thank you, Germain,' said the young wife, in a serious tone, and with deep feeling. "'I shall die with it, and if I die before you, you must keep it for your little Solange.'" Part Four: THE CABBAGE They remounted their horses and rode rapidly back to Bel-Air. The banquet was a sumptuous affair, and lasted, intermingled with dancing and singing, until midnight. The old people did not leave the table for fourteen hours. The grave-digger did the cooking, and did it very well. He was renowned for that, and he left his ovens to come and dance and sing between every two courses. And yet he was epileptic, was poor Père Bonton. Who would have suspected it? He was as fresh and vigorous and gay as a young man. One day we found him lying like a dead man in a ditch, all distorted by his malady, just at nightfall. We carried him to our house in a wheelbarrow, and passed the night taking care of him. Three days later he was at a wedding, singing like a thrush, leaping like a kid, and frisking about in the old-fashioned way. On leaving a marriage feast he would go and dig a grave and nail up a coffin. He performed those duties devoutly, and although they seemed to have no effect on his merry humour, he retained a melancholy impression which hastened the return of his attacks. His wife, a paralytic, had not left her chair for twenty years. His mother is a hundred and forty years old, and is still alive. But he, poor man, so jovial and kind-hearted and amusing, was killed last year by falling from his loft to the pavement. Doubtless he was suddenly attacked by his malady, and had hidden himself in the hay, as he was accustomed to do, in order not to frighten and distress his family. Thus ended, in a tragic way, a life as strange as himself, a mixture of gloom and folly, of horror and hilarity, amid which his heart remained always kind, and his character lovable. But we are coming to the third day of the wedding feast, which is the most interesting of all, and has been retained in full vigour down to our own day. We will say nothing of the slice of toast that is carried to the nuptial bed. That is an absurd custom which offends the modesty of the bride, and tends to destroy that of the young girls who are present. Moreover, I think, that it is a custom which obtains in all the provinces, and has no peculiar features as practised among us. 
just as the ceremony of the livret is the symbol of the taking possession of the bride's heart and home that of the cabbage is the symbol of the fruitfulness of the union after breakfast on the day following the marriage ceremony comes this strange performance which is of gallic origin but as it passed through the hands of the primitive christians gradually became a sort of mystery or burlesque morality play of the middle ages to use the merriest and most energetic of the party disappear during the breakfast don their costumes and return escorted by the musicians dogs children and pistol shots they represent a couple of beggars husband and wife covered with the vilest rags the husband is the dirtier of the two it is vice that has degraded him the woman is unhappy simply and debased by her husband's evil ways they are called the gardener and the gardener's wife and claim to be fitted to watch and cultivate the sacred cabbage but the husband is known by several appellations all of which have a meaning he is called indifferently the pelou because he wears a wig made of straw or hemp and to hide his nakedness which is ill protected by his rags he surrounds his legs and a part of his body with straw he also provides himself with a huge belly or a hump by stuffing straw or hay under his blouse the pilu because he is covered with pil rags and lastly the payen heathen which is the most significant of all because he is supposed by his cynicism and his debauched life to represent in himself the antipodes of all the christian virtues he arrives with his face daubed with grease and wine lees sometimes swallowed up in a grotesque mask a wretched cracked earthen cup or an old wooden shoe hanging by a string to his belt he uses to ask alms in the shape of wine no one refuses him and he pretends to drink then pours the wine on the ground by way of libation at every step he falls and rolls in the mud he pretends to be most disgustingly drunk his poor wife runs after him picks him up calls for help tears out the hempen hair that protrudes in springy locks from beneath her soiled cap weeps over her husband's degradation and reproaches him pathetically you wretch she says see what your bad conduct has reduced us to it's no use for me to spin to work for you to mend your clothes you never stop tearing and soiling them you have run through my little property our six children are in the gutter we live in a stable with the beasts here we are reduced to asking alms and you are so ugly so revolting so despised that soon they will toss bread to us as they do to the dogs alas my poor mon take pity on us take pity on me i don't deserve my fate and no woman ever had a filthier more detestable husband help me to pick him up or else the wagons will crush him like an old broken bottle and i shall be a widow which would kill me with grief although everybody says it would be a great good fortune for me such is the role of the gardener's wife and her constant lamentation throughout the play for it is a genuine spontaneous improvised comedy played in the open air on the highways among the fields seasoned by all the incidents that happen to occur and in it everybody takes a part wedding guests and outsiders occupants of the houses and passers-by for three or four hours in the day as we shall see the theme is always the same but it is treated in an infinite variety of ways and therein we see the instinct of mimicry the abundance of grotesque ideas the fluency the quickness at repartee and even the natural eloquence of our peasants the part of the gardener's wife is ordinarily entrusted to a slender beardless man with a fresh complexion 
who is able to give great verisimilitude to the character he assumes, and to represent burlesque despair so naturally that the spectators may be amused and saddened at the same time as by the genuine article. Such thin, beardless men are not rare in our country districts, and strangely enough, they are sometimes the most remarkable for muscular strength. After the wife's wretched plight is made evident, the younger wedding guests urge her to leave her sot of a husband and divert herself with them. They offer her their arms and lead her away. Gradually she yields, becomes animated, and runs about, now with one, now with another, behaving in a scandalous way. A new moral lesson. The husband's misconduct incites and causes misconduct on the part of his wife. The payan thereupon awakens from his drunken stupor. He looks about for his companion, provides himself with a rope and a stick, and runs after her. They lead him a long chase. They hide from him. They pass the woman from one to another. They try to keep her amused and to deceive her jealous mate. His friends try hard to intoxicate him. At last he overtakes his faithless spouse and attempts to beat her. The most realistic, shrewdest touch in this parody of the miseries of conjugal life is that the jealous husband never attacks those who take his wife away from him. He is very polite and prudent with them. He does not choose to vent his wrath on any one but the guilty wife, because she is supposed to be unable to resist him. But just as he raises his stick and prepares his rope to bind the culprit, all the men in the wedding party interpose and throw themselves between the two. Don't strike her, never strike your wife, is the formula that is repeated to satiety in these scenes. They disarm the husband, they force him to pardon his wife and embrace her, and soon he pretends to love her more dearly than ever. He walks about arm in arm with her, singing and dancing, until a fresh attack of intoxication sends him headlong to the ground once more, and with that his wife's lamentations recommence. Her discouragement, her pretended misconduct, the husband's jealousy, the intervention of the bystanders, and the reconciliation. There is in all this an ingenious, even commonplace, lesson, which savors strongly of its origin in the Middle Ages, but which always makes an impression, if not upon the bride and groom, who are too much in love and too sensible to-day to need it, at all events upon the children and young girls and boys. The pian so terrifies and disgusts the girls by running after them and pretending to want to kiss them, that they fly from him with an emotion in which there is nothing artificial. His besmeared face and his great stick, perfectly harmless, by the way, makes the youngsters shriek with fear. It is the comedy of manners in its most elementary but most impressive state. When this farce is well under way, they prepare to go in search of the cabbage. They bring a hand-barrow, on which the pian is placed, armed with a spade, a rope, and a great basket. Four strong men carry him on their shoulders. His wife follows him on foot. The ancients come in a group behind, with grave and pensive mien. Then the wedding party falls in, two by two, keeping time to the music. The pistol shots begin again. The dogs howl louder than ever at sight of the unclean payan, thus born in triumph. The children salute him derisively, with wooden clogs tied at the ends of strings. But why this ovation to such a revolting personage? They are marching to the conquest of the sacred cabbage the emblem of matrimonial fecundity, and this besotted drunkard is the only man who can put his hand upon the symbolic plant. Therein, doubtless, is a mystery anterior to Christianity, a mystery that reminds one of the festival of the Saturnalia or some ancient Bacchanalian revel. Perhaps this paean 
who is at the same time the gardener par excellence, is nothing less than Priapus in person, the god of gardens and debauchery. A divinity probably chaste and serious in his origin, however, like the mystery of reproduction, but insensibly degraded by licentiousness of manners and disordered ideas. However that may be, the triumphal procession arrives at the bride's house and marches into her garden. There they select the finest cabbage, which is not quickly done, for the ancients hold a council and discuss the matter at interminable length, each pleading for the cabbage which seems to him the best adapted for the occasion. The question is put to a vote, and when the choice is made, the gardener fastens his rope around the stalk and goes as far away as the size of the garden permits. The gardener's wife looks out to see that the sacred vegetable is not injured in its fall. The jesters of the wedding party, the hemp-beater, the grave-digger, the carpenter or the cobbler, in a word, all those who do not work on the land, and who, as they pass their lives in other people's houses, are reputed to have and do really have more wit and a readier tongue than the simple agricultural laborers, take their places around the cabbage. One digs a trench with the spade, so deep that you would say he was preparing to dig up an oak tree. Another puts on his nose a droke, made of wood or pasteboard, in imitation of a pair of spectacles. He performs the duties of engineer, comes forward, walks away, prepares a plan, overlooks the workmen, draws lines, plays the pedant, cries out that they are spoiling the whole thing, orders the work to be abandoned and resumed according to his fancy, and makes the performance as long and as absurd as he can. Is this an addition to the former programme of the ceremony, in mockery of theorists in general, for whom the ordinary peasant has the most sovereign contempt, or in detestation of land surveyors who control the register of lands and assess the taxes, or of the employees of the departments of roads and bridges who convert common lands into highways and cause the suppression of time-worn abuses dear to the peasant heart? Certain it is that this character in the comedy is called the geometrician, and that he does his utmost to make himself unbearable to those who handle the pick and shovel. At last, after quarter of an hour of mummery and remonstrances, so that the roots of the cabbage may not be cut, and it can be transplanted without injury, while spadefuls of earth are thrown into the faces of the bystanders, woe to him who does not step aside quickly enough, though he were a bishop or a prince, he must receive the baptism of earth. The payan pulls the rope, the payenne holds her apron, and the cabbage falls majestically amid the cheers of the spectators. Then the basket is brought, and the pagan couple proceed to plant the cabbage therein with all imaginable care and precautions. They pack it in fresh soil, they prop it up with sticks and strings as city florists do their superb potted camellias, they plant red apples stuck on twigs, branches of thyme, sage, and laurel all about it, they deck the hole with ribbons and streamers, they place the trophy on the hand-barrow with the peon, who is expected to maintain its equilibrium and keep it from accident, and at last they leave the garden in good order to the music of a march. But when they come to pass through the gate, and again when they try to enter the bridegroom's yard, an imaginary obstacle bars the passage. The bearers of the barrow stumble, utter loud exclamations, step back, go forward again, and, as if they were driven back by an invisible force, seem to succumb under the burden. Meanwhile the rest of the party laugh heartily, and urge on and soothe the human team. Softly, softly, boy! Come! Courage! Look out! Patience! Stoop! 
The gate is too low. Close up, it's too narrow. A little to the left, now to the right. Come, take heart, there you are. So it sometimes happens that, in years of abundant crops, the ox-cart, laden beyond measure with fodder or grain, is too broad or too high to enter the barn-door. And such exclamations are shouted at the powerful cattle to restrain or excite them, and with skilful handling and vigorous efforts the mountain of wealth is made to pass, without mishap, beneath the rustic triumphal arch. Especially with the last load, called the gerbode, are these precautions required for that is made the occasion of a rustic festival, and the last sheaf gathered from the last furrow is placed on top of the load, decorated with ribbons and flowers, as are the heads of the oxen and the driver's goad. Thus the triumphal, laborious entry of the cabbage into the house is an emblem of the prosperity and fruitfulness it represents. Arrived in the bridegroom's yard, the cabbage is taken to the highest point of the house or the barn. If there is a chimney, a gable end, a dovecote, Higher than the elevated portions, the burden must, at any risk, be taken to that culminating point. The paean accompanies it thither, fixes it in place, and waters it from a huge jug of wine, while a salvo of pistol-shots and the joyful contortions of the paean announce its inauguration. The same ceremony is immediately repeated. Another cabbage is dug up in the bridegroom's garden, and borne with the same formalities to the roof that his wife has abandoned to go with him. The trophies remain in place until the rain and wind destroy the baskets and carry off the cabbages. But they live long enough to offer some chance of fulfillment of the prophecy that the old men and matrons utter as they salute them. Beautiful cabbage, they say, live and flourish, so that our young bride may have a fine little baby before the end of the year. For if you die too quickly, it will be a sign of sterility, and you will be stuck up there on top of the house like an evil omen. The day is far advanced before all these performances are at an end. It only remains to escort the husband and wife to the godfathers and godmothers. When these putative parents live at a distance, they are escorted by the musicians and all the wedding party to the limits of the parish. There there is more dancing by the roadside, and they kiss the bride and groom when they take leave of them. The paean and his wife are then washed and dressed in clean clothes, when they are not so fatigued by their roles that they have had to take a nap. They were still dancing and singing and eating at the farmhouse at Belair at midnight on the third day of the festivities attending Germain's wedding. The old men were seated at the table, unable to leave it, and for good reason. They did not recover their legs and their wits until the next day at dawn. At that time, while they sought their homes in silence and with uncertain steps, Germain, proud and well content, went out to yoke his cattle, leaving his young wife to sleep until sunrise. The lark, singing as he flew upward to the sky, seemed to him to be the voice of his heart, giving thanks to Providence. The hoar-frost, glistening on the bare bushes, seemed to him the white April blossoms that precede the appearance of the leaves. All nature was serene and smiling in his eyes. Little Pierre had laughed and jumped about so much the day before that he did not come to help him to drive his oxen but Germain was content to be alone. He fell on his knees in the furrow through which he was about to run his plough once more, and repeated the morning prayer with such emotion that the tears rolled down his cheeks, still moist with perspiration. In the distance could be heard the songs of the youths from the adjoining parishes, just starting for home, and repeating, in voices somewhat the worse for wear, the merry refrains of the preceding night. 
End of Parts 3 and 4 of The Appendix to the Devil's Pool End of The Devil's Pool